1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Easy passage, right? You're kind of like, I, I, I understood exactly what Paul was saying there. Maybe not on first reading, maybe by third, fourth, fifth. So we're going to try and unpack this uh, and maybe explain what it is. And I'm going to hit one particular point in this passage that hopefully will be important that you can take away and apply to yourselves as well. But the entitled message today is Questions. So I was sitting with a couple not too long ago, um, and uh, as you do with couples sometimes, a question will come up where they will discuss change, change in their marriage, change about their relationship. And in the process of this, uh, they were beginning, I, I said, suggested to them that maybe they should bring a list of everything that they bring to the relationship. So they would bring and say, I bring all of this to the relationship, and this is what a list of all the things that I'm looking for in the relationship. And then we'd match them up. So it was really good, we didn't, went through this, and sometimes you don't realize that uh, you may use certain words and you actually are talking about the same thing, but you just haven't described them in the same way. There was, however, one phrase that popped up in this exercise that I just took, I took notes straight away, and I penciled it down for myself, and I thought, I'm gonna have to use this someday in a sermon because it's just as a classic one, and I'm gonna have to keep this. One of the individuals said that they were looking for, in the other person, and this is what they said, they said, they just want them to let me be me. Let me be me. Isn't that great? I mean, it's from Dr. Seuss, isn't that great? Just let me be me. I mean, what did it mean? It turned out in this couple to be a really good thing. Let me be me, right? It's a great thing to do. But it could have been a horrible thing, right? It could have meant, don't ever question me. Don't ever give me any advice. Don't ever expect me to grow or learn. Just let me wallow in my dirt. Let me be me, right? It could have also mean, meant, you're meddling. You know, you're controlling and you're not supporting my visions and my dreams in my life. And so it could have been a disaster. Fortunately for them, it wasn't that way. I sense that with Paul, that he was anticipating that they were just about to say the same thing. You get the impression that, uh, you know, that they understand exactly this, that he's just told everyone, look, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to have any national or local or religious affiliation. You don't need to belong to a church. You just need to lift up Jesus, put him in your heart, and that's where it's all about. And everybody was going to be saying, well, great, let me be me. 
right? I don't need church. This would be fantastic. I never need to go again. I'm just going to be me, right? And there's no advantage to being church. And I think Paul kind of sensed this. As he was writing it, he's thinking about all his conversations, and he's thinking, oh, man, this is not going to go well. So Paul opens up his own fight club. If you don't know what Fight Club is, it's a, it's a story and a movie, and I'm just going to tell you how it goes. Basically, this guy starts a Fight Club, and then at the end of the movie, you find out that he's just fighting himself. Ha, huh, I just saved you two hours. Believe me, you don't have to watch the movie because it's a waste of two hours, but I just saved your life. So Paul starts his own Fight Club, and in this Fight Club, it's like he's got his own mirror, and he's looking at himself, and he's saying, all right, I'm going to look at myself, and I'm going to discuss this entire thing. That's what that text is. It's him discussing it with himself, and he's like, I'm going to have this conversation with myself. Now, I know you're wondering, did people back then, did they have institutions and facilities for people with mental health issues, right? That's what you're thinking, because maybe Paul could have attended one of those places. Maybe there was some kind of medication or some therapy. But that's what you're thinking when you're reading this text until you start to unpack the text. And when you unpack it, you realize, oh my goodness, the guy didn't need to go to a mental institution. Now the guy's really bright. He's really smart. He knows exactly what he's saying. And he's taking us on this journey. And I kind of get it. And he's really, really on point. And then you realize you have to go to school because Paul knows exactly what he's thinking. He thought the same thing. So he, when he's speaking, he speaks to himself. And Paul does this more than once. He'll do this in Philippians chapter 3. If you read Philippians chapter 3 in your own time, uh, you'll realize that Paul the Pharisee argues with Paul the Christian in that entire chapter. And just read Philippians chapter 3 and you'll see it. It's kind of this huge debate back and forth. Because Paul understands the, the joy of the question and the diatribe and the negotiation side there. Paul was a Hebrew who was writing in Greek, but he never forgot his Hebrew thinking. Now, you've got to understand that Hebrew thinking is very important. It's important for us. It's important for us to remember how they think. And they thought differently. And we, unfortunately, more Greek-like, but we should never forget the Hebrew thinking. So Hebrew is more concrete than abstract. It does have abstract thoughts, but it's very much more concrete. Hebrew has more active nouns more than passive nouns. So a concrete example would be this. When you read in Psalms 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. In Hebrew... The word anger is actually knows. And you're wondering, oh, how do we end up with anger? Well, because when you're angry, your nose flares. <laughs> and the nostrils flare, right? And so that's how you get angry. You're like, ah, and you get angry. Well, some of us flare really a lot when we get angry. Some of us are very stealth-like. I may know people like that. I'm just saying that uh, your nose flares, and so this is where it, they interpret it, and the English translation turns it into anger, whereas in Hebrew, it's concrete, it just says, slow nose. Uh, it doesn't really kind of ring to us, so we interpret it in English, and we say, slow to anger. An active example of the noun would be that in Hebrew, uh, the active nouns always just uh, describe the object inside it. So in Greek, we actually just describe it, but in, inside that we put an action inside it. So when, and because it's Father's Day, I thought this would be appropriate, a father in Hebrew actually means this, the one who gives strength to the family. Isn't that good? I like that. The one who gives strength to the family. I'm going to go buy a battle axe. I really, I'm going to go find one of those Thor ones, just walk around home. 
and just say, the one who gives strength to the family, that's what I am, the father. And then I thought maybe because, um, it's, you know, there's mothers as well, I should probably share that as well. And so this is what this says in Hebrew, I'll just say this really quickly, the one that binds the family together. Yeah, I know, I know there's a lot of strength in there, but that's what it meant in Hebrew, when they saw the mother, they described the mother, the word means the one who actually binds the entire family. So the father brings strength to it, but, but the mother actually binds the entire family together. Now you imagine the thinking behind that, that we don't actually say, we just say father, mother, and then we interpret what that means. In Hebrew, they actually had that embedded in their language. This is the reason why I love Paul so much, because he understands so much of the Hebrew thought, because he was a Hebrew, a Jew himself. He has this embedded in all of his language. So one day, we will get to, maybe next year, maybe the year after, we will get to the book of Hebrews, and we will study through the book of Hebrews, Jesus. And when you study Jesus and the sanctuary and the high priest, you will start to understand a picture of Christ that you've never imagined before. It is powerful and palatable to see a concrete and active description of who Jesus Christ is. But he wants to deliver this rich experience because he had this experience. That road to Damascus a moment is his experience. On top of that, he studied relentlessly his Bible. His Bible was the law, the writings, and the prophets, which we would refer to as the Old Testament, or I like to refer to as the First Testament. This is what he did. So if you take your experience and knowledge, your heart and mind, you start to understand how the Hebrews thought. And this is not a new idea. This is an old idea. This is the ancient idea. This is the way that they did when heaven and earth were one when they were in sync together, when God walked among Adam and Eve and caught up with them. I imagine, when they got together, how many questions Adam and Eve would have had with God. And how would it have gone? Would, would they said, uh, they would have come along and said, God, I have a question, and God would have brought out a blackboard and some chalk, and said, sit down on the front row and let me explain. No, probably not, right? He probably had a whiteboard and a marker. I know that some of you are probably thinking that he crossed his legs, he touched their fingers with his fingers, E.T. style, and transported data, <laughs> like a buzz, right? Because some of you think that God just doesn't talk to people, right? Like some kind of like teleporting, and there was like some kind of telepathic, oh, and Adam was like, ah, there was like some kind of like connection. No, actually God just spoke to them, because that's what the Bible talks about. They walked and they talked. They enjoyed it. And there was this conversation that took place, and it's always been this way. In fact, the best questions are not always to imply that you have to have the answer. The best questions generate faith. The best questions create dialogue, and the best questions challenge us. And God wants us to question. He's not afraid of questions. He wants to converse with us. We need to generate faith, create dialogue, and challenge us all the time. Hence, Paul, in this passage, it's just full of questions all the way through. I know that some of you are questioning right now whether the shirt and jacket actually match. I know, I know. You're just going to have to like, get over it. Seek some counsel. Go online. Realize this is the future. You will soon see. See, I, some of you don't understand this. It's okay. Some of us are just ahead of you. <laughs> One day, when you catch up, you'll be like, ah, oh, you'll see, you'll see. 
Hence Paul, full of questions inside here, unpacks all this stuff because he's not afraid to say, let me just unpack this stuff. And here are the four questions that he actually says inside here. And he actually gives some answers inside here. He says, is there a way, is there any value in belonging to the church? He says, if God's people are unfaithful, does it mean that God will be unfaithful? which is actually the question that Pastor Jessica was kind of addressing really well inside our kids' life here. What right does God have to judge any of us? The more we sin, the better God looks when he rescues us, so why can't we sin more? Isn't that a crazy one? The more we sin, the better God looks when he rescues us. So I think we should just keep on sinning so God looks really great. People actually believe this, and they actually practice this, and Paul's like, ah, ah, no, 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 no. And that's how he says his response, by the way. He actually got high-pitched like that. Uh, it was his way of writing. So that's why it looks kind of crazy and chaotic inside there. But we don't have time to address all of these questions. In fact, he really unpacks these questions uh, at the end in chapters 9 to 11. He gives kind of a short burst. It's like he's just given an introduction right now because as he was telling the story, because he has something more important that's coming in the next few weeks, as he's going through this journey of trying to explain how God processes judgment, how God works with us, how God is a God of justice, he realizes, oh, I know what you're thinking. Let me be me. No, 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 no. Let me explain. You actually do need to belong. So let me just address it quickly and then move on. But then, chapters 9 to 11, he'll expand it more. But today, I just want to address this very first question, which I mentioned last week that I think is important. Is there any value in belonging to the church, or why should I become a member of the church? Here at Boulder, we have partners and members. Some of you are like, what? I didn't know that. I'm going to tell you. We have partners and members. Everyone is welcome to be a partner, absolutely. If you simply attend the worship service today and fill out a Connect card and meet with one of the pastors or elders, uh, you know, we'll have your details, we'll put it inside our people app, and you're a partner with us. And you're partner with our mission and our vision. We would welcome you, we welcome you, and we're glad to be able to connect with you. There are some of you, though, who are partners who actually have decided to become members. This means that you choose to align yourself with the mission and vision of this church. You say, I'm going to get invested in this church. I'm going to help to shape the trajectory of this church. I'm going to help to vote and be a leader in this church. I'm going to invest my time and my effort into this church. But why be bothered to be a member, according to Paul, right? So let's just be clear one quick thing here, because some people kind of worry about this. Paul is not talking about salvation. He's not saying to be saved, you have to be a member, all right? So I just want to clear this up. You are saved by God, not by the church. You are saved by God, not by the church. Mike, did I just lose my mic? It was like somebody was trying to cut my mic out during I was saying that because like, I disagree. <laughs> no, I'm joking, Miguel. <laughs> I actually, I had a speaker um, uh, at an event and he was gonna speak on a very controversial issue and I said to him, I need you to speak on this subject and this subject here, I really, I don't need you to speak on that. He said, oh, pastor, I won't speak on that. So, <laughs> and he's a pretty famous guy, so he runs to the front of, the church, of this thing, of 3,000 people inside there. He's at the front, I'm at the back, oh, I'm on the side, and he literally starts to speak on that controversial event, uh, subject. And I'm like, I, I thought we agreed that you were not gonna touch that subject. Uh, you're just gonna like cause absolute trouble. So, so I just turned to the sound guy, I'm like, ah, ha, ha like mafia style. 
the sound guy is petrified. No, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. So I just like start marching back to the sound desk, which the speaker then realizes is, well, I see that your uh, director of the conference is uh, about to cut my sound, so I'm going to change subject. I'm like, thank you, thank you. So uh, it was a fun moment. Uh, needless to say, we, we did not invite him back. Um, <laughs> salvation comes from Jesus Christ, comes from God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It is not contingent on you being a member. You understand it's a gift from God. It's something you don't earn. It's something that God gives to you. You just have to receive the gift. When you understand that you belong to God, though, you want to respond to this, and you confess his name, you get baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's beautiful, right? This is the gift of salvation. The best metaphor that I've been thinking of to kind of parallel this is like, you fall in love, you get married, and then you move back to your parents' place. And when I say you move back to your parents' place, you move back to your respective parents' place. You with me? You get married and you say, hey, it was nice, the wedding was great, I'm going to my mom's place and you go to your mom's place. <laughs> and you both depart. That's actually what it feels like sometimes when you decide to follow Jesus and you don't decide to engage your faith by joining a community. Mm -hmm. I know, no, 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 let me be me. I just want to be able to create my own paradigm, right? Yes, I understand. Enjoy that paradigm as you're living in each other's parents' houses. Let me know how that marriage goes for you. So what Paul is trying to say here is that, yes, you can get married, but in fact, you should actually come together. It's great to be able to come together occasionally, but you should actually live together. So Paul picks up on this, saying to them, I understand that you guys are saved. I understand that you guys have accepted the gift of salvation. You are people, you are married. People, you are this, but you are not moving back together. Do you understand this? So he brings up this sentence to begin with in verse 2 of that chapter. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. To begin with, with the Jews, were entrusted with the oracles of God. And it's in this one word, entrusted, that I think we just read over so quickly, skip over, and we don't even understand the deep Hebrew thoughts inside here. Because it is a concrete and active word for Paul. He's saying inside this entrusting, it's not actually for you. It's actually something you've been given for someone else. I think this is very difficult for us sometimes. We think that the gospel is for us because it's about our salvation. But it's actually saying, I entrust you, I give you the gospel, so you may be faithful to the gospel to give to somebody else. So, have we done a good job? Have we been faithful to the gospel? Have we been faithful to the blessing of the marriage? Marriage, my friends, is not about two people. It's not about two people. It's, it's about two people who actually create life together to shape the world. When people get married and they think it's just about themselves, oh my goodness, what a disaster they're gonna create. They become just insular. When they realize that they're getting married to actually create life, to be together, to actually belong to community, to make friends, to be part of the world, to actually shape the planet, they are much stronger. Marriages break down when they're about themselves. Marriages grow when they exist in community because they learn with other people, because we learn from our friends, we learn from each other. Same for your faith. If your walk with God is just about you, and we make spiritual walks with God all the time so personal, so private, that sometimes I wonder whether anybody knows whether they have one. They're kind of like, I don't know. I think, I think I've talked to God, 
but it's so quiet that nobody knows about it. They don't even know about it because it's so private. And I'm saying, God is saying, I have a vision and mission and it's much bigger than this. And you need to experience this in community. Look, church is about the community. So the Barna Group, huge research uh, group here, just came out a few uh, months ago with new findings on Generation Z. Generation Z. I know that you guys will pronounce this differently. I think you would say Generation Z. Uh, but it's actually correctly pronounced as Generation Z or Gen Z, uh, which actually sounds much better than Generation Z. See? Doesn't sound good, does it? So Gen Z. Uh, and for quite some time, they have thought for a long time that Gen Z is actually the same as millennials. But this research that just came out, and it's just the beginning, right? So they're going to do a whole bunch of research for the rest of eternity because unfortunately Americans do enjoy doing research a lot, which is what we in, we in Europe loved. We just love to see all the research you guys do and then we just copy it. So um, it's the way we operated inside there. But uh, this research has been really astounding because they're saying that Gen Z is actually the largest American population generation ever. 69 to 70 million people. That's what they're saying for Gen Z. These are kids who are born between 1999 and 2015. Do we have any of those people here? Uh, you're like, when's my date of birth? Mom, when's my date of birth? <laughs> 1999 and 2015. So it's a very tight window, right? Which means that uh, some of the values of this generation, 1999, 2015, will push down to the younger generation. So parents, maybe you want to listen to some of this stuff as well. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time due to time, so I'm going to skip over some of this stuff. But here's a, here's a little snippet. They are referred to as screenagers. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. Screenagers, because of the amount of time they spend on their screens and their parents spend on their screens. In fact, uh, if you get a onesie for this generation, the onesie says, hey, mom, dad, get off, stop texting so you can feed me, right? Uh, because that's the, the way that they're grown. They're the first generation to have parents who are actually fully connected to the screens as much as their children are connected to the screens. Their worldview is post-Christian, safe spaces are normal. Uh, we had a huge debate here three years ago whether we should use the word space inside our mission statement. We were ahead of the time, but we voted no. It's okay, that's all right. Real safety is a myth. Uh, they are diverse. Their parents are double-minded, which is a very interesting phrase, and we want to unpack that today. We will do some of this work later on in the church here. This is the first generation uh, to be grown up by Gen X parents. When it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the Bible, this generation is very similar to their parents' values of the Bible. So they are healthy when it comes to understanding science and the Bible. They have similar percentage agreements with their parents. Unlike millennials, who were grown up by boomers, that actually are very cynical uh, with their parents about the Bible and the science. So boomers and, and uh, the way they grew up their kids are entirely different to the way Gen Xers did. But whereas with millennials, though, uh, when it comes to church, church for Gen Z is just not relevant. So Gen X parents, who grown up, these kids, these Gen Z kids, these are kids 1999 to 2015, their kids are basically saying, listen, church, just not relevant. It doesn't mean anything. I can find God elsewhere. I'm not denying God. I just feel that I can find God elsewhere. I do not feel the need for church. So why would you become a member if the church is irrelevant? This is the tension of church all the time. Because, my friends, while partners are great, and they are, they're phenomenal. We actually need people to make the decision to become a member. Because when you become a member, you accept that you are entrusted with the gospel and the responsibility 
weighs heavy on you and it never goes away. And Paul said this to them, you are entrusted with the gospel and I expect you to carry it and to share it. And did you do it? No, but I entrusted you with the gospel. But God is faithful even if you're not and he's still going to entrust you with the gospel. So today, if your first time to church is today, and I know some of you, I've met some of you, this is the first time to church today. Look, I just, I just hope that you take away this message, that it's okay to ask questions, it's great to ask questions, I hope that you ask lots of questions, I hope that you stay connected, fill in a connect card, stay connected to us, meet one of the pastors, the elders, let's get connected, let's get some coffee, sit down and talk, please do not give up on the possibility of discovering who God is. That's if you're first time today. For our regular partners, for our regular partners, I know that many of you support the mission and vision here. I know you support it with your tithe and your offerings, with your time and your love, with your ideas and your conversations. And this is what I hope for you today, if you're a partner. If you're not baptized, I hope that you'll make a decision to get baptized. I hope that you'll decide, look, I actually want to become a member, I'm gonna get baptized. If you are baptized, I hope you decide I actually will become a member because I want to shape this church. I want to be able to shape the trajectory of this church. If you are a regular member, if you are a regular member, well, I'm gonna have a direct word for you. Welcome to being judged, all right? So all the visitors are like, ah, he's not talking to me today. And all the partners are like, ah, I'm so lucky. Members, ears open. We have to have a conversation today. Because um, I need you. And I need you to understand that God is calling you to something. It's not about me. It's actually about us. And I'm going to ask you to start to lay aside your personal preferences even more. You don't like things the way some stuff go? Create a home what you want. Here is not about you, it is about us. Because we have been entrusted to make this church relevant to the next generation, to the generation today, and for the church of the future. So I'm asking you members to be faithful to God, to be entrusted with this. And I'm asking you to continue to continue lifting up the mission here with your tithes and offerings. Do you hear this? I, uh, I actually asked the vision board's permission the other day if they would give me permission just to see who gives tithes and offerings in this church. Until recently, it was only the church finance manager, Melissa Drain, who actually had access to who gives tithes and offerings. I'm not talking about whether you give $1 or $100,000. I'm not talking about amounts. I'm just asking whether you give tithe or whether you give offerings. And uh, just uh, as part of our transparency and part of our openness here, if anybody wants to know uh, whether I give tithe or offerings, uh, come and ask me, and not only will I tell you what I do, but I will give you a statement of my giving, all right? So you will see how much I give, and we can dialogue about that. I'm not looking at how much you give, I'm just looking whether you give tithe offerings. So I did some work on this. I haven't had a lot of time. I've done a snapshot work on this and just beginning. And I looked at about 160 volunteers, you know, and this is just the beginning because I know there's a lot more. 160 volunteers in the church who helped to put worship and our connect groups on every single week. And um, of the 160 volunteers in church, 51 give nothing to tithe and offerings. So I was kind of like blown away. I was like, I don't know. 
what, what is the reason for that? Is it that some of them give it inside the offering plate as cash? Is that what it is? Uh, maybe. Maybe that's what's going on here. So I, I don't understand what's going on with that. So this was an interesting insight to me. I was talking with one family, and they said they didn't understand how it actually works. They said they give their entire tithe and offering to Vista Ridge Academy. And I said, oh, okay, that's, a, that's an interesting method. But I said to them, actually, what you need to do is give your full tithe and offering to the church, not to Vista Ridge Academy. Because you understand the church is what actually supports Vista Ridge Academy. And with your money, doubled up with all the money the church has, we can do even more to be able to help uh, Vista Ridge Academy. And we have, we've done amazing things to be able to help Vista Ridge Academy, like when they needed 20,000 extra dollars on top of everything else with marketing, when they need extra teachers and stuff, the tithe and offering makes a difference with the conference, with everything else to be able to support them with that. I'm not saying you can't help the school, I'm just saying that the best way to help the school is through the church. We meet and we support each other and we can do this even more. So let me just add an important caveat here. I know that some of you struggle to put food on your table. And, and just because of your pride and you can't even make your bills meet, please, if you cannot do it, come and talk to us and we can help you. There are funds because of the tithes and offerings in this church, because of the generous support of your people, that actually we can actually help you. This is what the mission and vision of this church is, to actually live the gospel of God to take care of communities inside here. So I'm asking you to continue supporting the church with your tithes and offerings. And I'm also asking you to continue with your time and creativity. As members, we're entrusted with the gospel to move away from just, if I just move away just from the 160 volunteers and start thinking about all the extra things we do with the boulder boulder that Greg Hodgson was leading just the other day, raising money for the youth department, all the great good relief that we do where we're actually working with people. Fresh word that takes place every single Tuesday here that Jackie Hayes organizes the most exquisite lunch. And you understand that Jesus lived in community with food and she creates the food, the environment that actually invites people to actually fellowship together, relax and talk and build community together every single Tuesday without fail. Or VBS, our vacation Bible school last week that Pastor Jessica led, that Thomas, who by the way, you can dance brother. I had no idea you had all these moves with the kids, it's fantastic. But the kids were learning every single day this powerful values, values of God that Monica was talking about that our school does, that teaches people who God is. This is living out and making the gospel relevant to every generation. We need to do this. Are we relevant? Yes, this church is becoming relevant. It's becoming relevant. And to become relevant, I'm not talking about current news. Those kids know enough current news. I'm talking about that it's relevant, that it's actually transforming our lives, because that's what they mean by this. Our world needs Jesus. Our country needs Jesus, and our cities need Jesus. And our church needs Jesus. And in order to do this, we have to live this life more authentically, more honestly with each other. We have to live in community, not by ourselves anymore. So I'm inviting you, if you're a first-time person here, to just think about this. I'm going to read a text to you. It's in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verses 4 to 7. And you can look in your Bibles as well, but I'm just going to read this text to you. Psalm 78, verses 4 to 7. This is the call. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. 
He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he had commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. God has called us to be men and women of deep moral character, men and women who walk with God who ask questions and dialogue with God. And as we dialogue with God, we will not be afraid of any kind of conversation. We will enjoy this and we will become the most relevant community. And I need you to think about being engaged in that, to become a member of this so we can change it together.